Welcome back. Glad that you have come back, particularly for those of you who were here in the first, uh, for the first weekend last month. We're glad that you enjoyed it so much, or at least muscled through it so much, that you did, in fact, come back. So we're glad that you're here. Uh, like Brian said, I am Pastor Peter LaRufa, and I have the privilege of serving as the campus pastor of our Fort Thomas campus. So you're sitting in our Florence campus if you're visiting us, and Pastor Brian serves as the campus pastor of this campus, and I get to serve as the campus pastor of our Fort Thomas campus, which is uh, probably about 20, 25 minutes away from here, a little closer to Cincinnati, just uh, north, northeast of us here over in Florence. So we've been there uh, for about a year now. Before that, our congregation was meeting in movie theaters uh, in, at the Newport on the Levee. I don't know if you're familiar with that area. And we were there for about two and a half years. And we're very excited for what God is doing among us. We're about, to launch our, we're about to launch a second worship service. So we've been going a year now. And Lord willing, on Sunday, October 30th, we will have two worship services, which is kind of mind-boggling for this campus pastor. But very, 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 uh, very exciting. Uh, today we are talking about, we'll get right to the uh, material, get right to the topic, because as you know, if you can look in your notebooks, you know there is a ton for us to cover. So we are uh, in the middle of uh, the Biblical Counseling Training Conference, but talking about God's basic truths concerning marriage. God's basic truths concerning marriage. So we call it such because what we're going to talk about today is we're going to look at a, in broad brushstrokes, what does the Bible have to say about marriage because I've been counseling for quite some time now and I've been married for coming up on 14 years and no two marriages are alike no two counseling cases are alike there's no such thing as cookie cutter marriages or cookie cutter counseling cases so what we're looking today is at basic truths concerning marriage getting back to the foundations concerning marriage maybe you remember many many years ago it was either a poem or a book or an essay but somebody said this, everything I needed to know about life I learned in kindergarten, right? And I don't know that that's necessarily true. But the point and the premise behind that title, behind that, uh, calling it that, is that basically so many times the issues that we face in life, we're forgetting what? The basics, right? We're forgetting the foundational truths. We're forgetting the fundamentals of life. So oftentimes in counseling cases, particularly in marriage counseling cases, you start out looking at what does God have to say about marriage? Do we have the fundamental truths right? Let's get down to the basics. So we're going to do that, and we're going to do that today. By way of introduction, we want to say this. God designed marriage. We know that because of Genesis 2 and verse 18. Marriage is established in the creation account, okay? Now the fact, let's get a little interactive here. The fact that marriage was designed in Genesis chapter 2... Okay, Genesis chapter 2, if you're familiar with your Bibles, the fact that marriage was designed in Genesis chapter 2 means it was designed before what major event? Somebody raise your hand or shout it out. The fall, right? This is pre-fall. This is not something that happened as a result of the fall. Oh no, there was the fall. We better get marriage in place. Not at all. This was God's original design for man and woman. God's original design for ultimate companionship ultimate love sharing and ultimately a picture of the gospel which we'll look at a little bit later it's important to remember that marriage was god's idea and that god said it was very good this is important for us to cover god says marriage is very good friends i'm speaking at a conference in sarasota florida next week we're speaking on a topics ranging to, uh topics on biblical sexuality 
And one of the first things that we're going to cover is the fact that marriage and sex is actually good. Marriage and sex is actually good. And we do that for two main reasons. The first reason we do that is because we are inundated, inundated in the culture in which we live by bad examples of marriage and bad examples of sex outside of marriage and marriage and sex uh, happening in ways that God never intended it to be. But we also do that because right here within our churches, it's sad to say, oftentimes marriage and sexuality, they're not covered and not spoken about a lot because they've become rather taboo, particularly when it comes to sexuality. We'll talk about that in other sessions. But it's, it, suffice it to say, it is good for us to pause and just say, hey, guess what? Marriage was God's idea, and God said it was very, very good. And this is important as we interact with our counselees. This is important for them to remember that marriage is good. Oftentimes, counselees will come to you, and they think marriage is, like, so not good, right? Because their marriage is falling apart. Their life is going through turmoil. They're in trouble, and they're going through trials. We want to make sure that they realize that, no, 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 no. It's not that marriage is bad. Marriage is very good, and that gives them great hope that God designed this to be something good. So if we can get back to what God designed it to be, your marriage has hope of receiving help from God's word and being what God had intended it to be. First of all, uh, secondly, marriage is designed to help each partner grow in holiness. Each partner grow in holiness. And then you'll see also that there's a quote in your outline from a Paul Tripwood called Relationships, a Mess Worth Making. He says this, Remember, your relationships have not been designed by God as vehicles for human happiness, but as instruments of redemption. God uses the relationships that we have in our life to help us to become more like Christ. And that could be true of any relationship. That could be true of any friendship. That could be true of any relationship between two people or in a group of people. Because we know that iron sharpens iron. But friends, if that can be between me and my brother in Christ, if that can be between me and friends, if that could be between me and a group, how much more so is there a potential for sanctification and growth within a marriage. Within a marriage where there's a relationship that is the most intense, that is the most intimate, God can use this to do great things in the lives of his children. Marriage is designed to help each other grow in holiness. And perhaps most importantly, perhaps most importantly, marriage is to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church, which we see from Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So by way of review, what we've covered so far, God designed marriage. It's a good thing. It's very good. Marriage is designed to help each person grow in holiness, to be more like Jesus Christ. But then also, and I think perhaps most importantly, marriage is to be a picture of a relationship between Christ and his church. Husbands and wives preach the gospel every day using very little words. Husbands and wives preach the gospel every day, and they may not be using words. They're giving an example of the relationship between God and his church. Now, 
don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't hear me saying that we can preach the gospel without using words. I'm kind of sick of that. I'm done with that. We need to use words when we preach the gospel. Amen? It would be really cool if you said that louder. Amen? Right. Okay, so we need to share. Nobody, like, catches salvation as if it's a cold. We need to preach the gospel and share truth with people and use words in so doing. However, the relationship that God has designed between husband and wife is meant to typify, is meant to illustrate, is meant to be a painting, a picture, an illustration of the relationship that God has with his church. And that gives us something to aspire to and something to remind our counselees about. Uh, In your outline, letter number D. Letter number D. Did I just say that? Letter, hello, letter D. Marriage is designed for life on earth, but not required to please God, grow spiritually, or impact others. If you take a look at what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 32. But I want you to be free from concern, he says to the church at Corinth. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. So what Paul is saying there is not that marriage is bad or marriage is worse, but he's saying there's still a lot of good and a lot of things to be desired in singleness. How many of you have noticed that's happened a couple of times now? So you know what? It wants to stay here. We're going to let it stay there. Huh? There we go. Okay. When it comes to singleness, singleness is not a disease. Singleness is not a sin that needs to be repented of. Marriage is not the cure for singleness, as if singleness is something that we need to put off. And it's like, oh, get married as soon as you can. Marriage is a glorious, glorious, glorious thing. But if you are single in here, if you are unmarried, you are that much more like Jesus than I am. Okay, singleness is not a bad thing. And in fact, here Paul says, I want you to realize, if you look at the text, uh, verse 33, one who is married is concerned about the things of this world, how he may please his wife. That means I have a concern, a God-given responsibility uh, to nurture and love and care for my wife and family. And if you are single, you have that much less to be concerned about. Now, I don't know if you're content that way and, and, and that's great, or if you desire to have that concern, you want that responsibility. But Paul right here is saying there's something very unique about being a single Christian man or a single Christian lady. And they can be more focused on the things of God because their interests are not divided. But if we bring that up in this counseling conference to say that marriage is designed for life on earth. Marriage helps people grow in holiness, but it's not required to please God. It's not required for spiritual growth or to impact others with the gospel. Uh, God intended marriage to be, though, the primary earthly relationship. God intended marriage to be the primary earthly relationship relationship. If you are married, that is your primary earthly relationship. Marriage is a covenant relationship for life between one man and one woman. That is how God designed marriage. We see in Matthew 19 and verse 6, we read, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Proverbs 2, verses 16 and following. To deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death, and her tracks lead to 
the dead. Uh, There's a quote in your outline uh, from John Piper in this book called This Momentary Marriage. It says, staying in love isn't the first task of marriage. It is a happy overflow of covenant keeping for Christ's sake. Marriage is supposed to be our primary earthly relationship. So it's not supposed to be something that I put above God. Anything can be an idol, even a good thing. I shouldn't put that before God. But my marriage to my wife, Sarah, is the single most important earthly relationship I have, bar none. I have four kids. I pastor a church. I meet with people. I have counselees. I I, I have different levels of love and tolerance, but mostly love for, for, for all of them. But the primary relationship in my life, my primary responsibility, if I wake up thinking about a relationship on earth... It should be between me and my wife. Marriage is a primary relationship, the the primary earthly relationship that God has given us. Marriage involves one man and one woman leaving father and mother, okay? Leaving father and mother. Now, we're going to talk about this. Leaving is more than just geographical in nature, okay? What we're going to do now is we're going to, in a moment, I want to ask you to put uh, all your, your pens down, and I want you to look up here, and I want you to join me in a very quick illustration, as hokey as it may be. It's okay. I'm a pastor. I can be hokey. Okay? We're going to do this. We're going to put both our hands up here. Okay? Obey. Okay, good. Okay? Look. Leave. Watch this. Cleave. Some of you missed. That was really funny. Some... Okay, let's do, do it again. Leave. Cleave. Watch this. Weave. Leave. Cleave. Weave. That's what we're going to look at. Those three important principles that God has for married couples. That they would leave, cleave unto one another, and weave their relationship together as the two become one. And what we're talking about here is leaving. Leaving is more than just geographical in nature. So what that means is this. You can have two people get married... Two people live in homes and in geographical locations that are different from, even far from, their parents, but they still haven't left. Does that make sense? Leaving includes, but is not limited to, leaving the geography, the geographical location, the proximity between you and your parents. Leaving is more than geographical in nature. Leaving would mean both individuals understand what we are calling the SPS principle. SPS principle. That the child and the parent's relationship is secondary to the parent's marriage. The child and the parent's relationship is secondary to the parent's marriage. I'm going to go through this really fast so you can fill it in and then so you can look up here at me. Okay, so secondary to the marriage That when a child grows and marries, the husband and wife relationship becomes their primary earthly relationship. But then the now parent's relationship to their child is a secondary relationship to their marriage, which is the primary relationship. Who's on first? What's on second? I don't know. Third base. How many of you? Okay. I don't know if that made sense as I said it out loud. But if you look back over your notes, hopefully now now that you've filled it in, okay, we'll walk through this. The child and the parent's relationship is secondary to the parent's marriage, okay? So I have a relationship with my parents. The Bible calls me to obey them as a child. The Bible calls me to honor them for life. 
And part of me honoring them is maintaining a close relationship with them as much as I can. I have a, uh, my parents are divorced. My mom is a Christian. My dad is not a believer. Uh, I try to be a faithful witness. Uh, I try to share the gospel. I try to model a, a, a life that has been impacted by Christ. I, and I, 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 I fail and I succeed and I fail and I do better and I do worse and trying my best to grow. But I honor my parents, but my primary relationship is with my wife. When I married Sarah almost 14 years ago, the relationship that I had with my parents became secondary to the relationship that I have with my wife. The child and the parents' relationship is secondary to the parents' marriage. Okay, let's take it into my home now. I have uh, four children, uh, boy, boy, girl, boy, Justin, Jonathan, Emma, and Silas, and they range in age from 13 down to 3. Uh, almost 13, 12 down to 3. And um, they are, uh, they take up a lot of time and a lot of attention. I don't know about your kids. My kids came into this world naked and just expecting to be fed. It was crazy. Uh, they, 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 can, they can use a lot of our time and attention and, and, and affection, and we love them dearly. We love them dearly. But by God's grace... We have strived, okay, we have strived to try to make sure that our marriage relationship was primary to our relationship with our kids. And it's something we had to do early, early on, okay? Because if you do the math, I just said um, we'll be married almost 14 years and our oldest is almost 13. Do the math, okay? So we had to, we had to establish how our life, we had a baby three, two, two and a half weeks right after our first anniversary, okay? And God has done wonderful things through that. But what we needed to do is make sure that we don't focus all of our time and attention on now almost 13-year-old Justin. Now, that doesn't mean we leave him to raise himself. That doesn't mean we just, you know, leave him with a bottle of milk and a remote control and say, it'll all work out. God is sovereign. Of course, we care. We care a lot. But it's important that we, as husband and wife, make sure that we guard our marriage from becoming secondary to our relationship from this needy, adorable, cheeky, chubby baby. Does that make sense? Primary, secondary. Now, when a child grows and marries, the husband and wife relationship becomes their primary earthly relationship. So... The jury's out as to how well I'm going to do on that as a dad, right? Because now my oldest is almost 13. Some of you have uh, children who are grown and out of the home and have married, and you can, you can counsel me and let me know what that's like, okay? But sitting here from the cheap seats, having not ever swung at that pitch, I'm hoping and praying that when that happens, if and when that happens, that my, my kids grow up and leave the home, if and when, if that happens, when that happens, they're going to leave, they're going to leave the home, Maybe. When, if, who knows, I don't know. But if and when that happens and they leave the home and they become married, I need to then realize that what has happened to my relationship with them, it has become secondary. It has become secondary. And hopefully I will encourage them in that, in that they would look at their marriage first. I have one girl. One girl. Before I had a girl, uh, before I had a daughter, um, I was a little critical, having, having two sons, I was kind of critical in my mind, like, okay, I get the whole wrapped around 
daddy's finger thing. And, but come on. But come on. Then I had a daughter. And I was humbled. Okay, because I'm, I'm pretty. I'm, I'd like to think I'm pretty consistent. I'd like to think I, I'm, I'm pretty... I don't think we're strict. Some people might say we're strict, but we're just probably rather conservative in nature, and, and, and we, we have tons of fun, but, you know, there's, we, we, we try to model and teach obedience and love and grace and model the gospel to them. Um, but when Emma does something that is out of line, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I think it's really different from when the, the boys did something out of line. I start calling into question. Some of you are smiling, so I hope that means you get it. Either you get it or you're laughing at me, and I'll take either. But, but uh, it, it, all of a sudden, it's like things come into, oh, but wait, this is different. And Sarah will say, my wife, she'll say, you'd have never let the boys get away with that like you just let Emma get away. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. What with the weather and the election and the thing going on and the, you know, every, there's a ton of things. Go, you read the, the euro versus the dollar. You have no idea what affects this child. It's totally different. One day that girl is going to grow up, Lord willing, marry a godly man. I am well aware of the fact, at least in theory, on paper, God's paper, that if she were to call me frustrated in her marriage, and say, I just can't believe this, and say, Daddy, I just want to come home, that the best thing I could say to her is, sweetie, you are home. Because my relationship, and hang up the phone and then sob, being the tough guy that I am, you are home. (laughs) Because my relationship with her will have become secondary to her marriage relationship. That is, if she ever sees the need to have a man in her life besides her dad, which, is, which she may not. That may not be necessary at all. She might. Anyway. So, do you understand this SPS, secondary, primary, secondary? Or uh, we used to call it temporary, permanent, temporary. Okay, because my relationship with my kids, just like my relationship with my parents, uh, that relationship was temporarily the fundamental relationship in my life. But marriage is permanent, right? Marriage is permanent. Till death do us part, the two become one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So we call it secondary, primary, secondary, or temporary, permanent, temporary. A husband and wife should settle past conflicts with parents, okay? And this is important. This is how one might leave, right? We're, talking, we're still talking about leaving. So it is always good to keep short accounts with anyone but particularly with parents. Something that I'm always on the lookout for when we, my wife and I do premarital or we do pre-engagement counseling, okay? So this is a couple that's just exploring. They're excited about what God has given them in their relationship and they're exploring the possibility of becoming husband and wife. I want to know if they're looking at marriage as a way out. I want to know if they're looking at marriage as, a, as an escape, as marriage as a way of, you know what, I could just put all these troubles behind me, and if I just get married, everything will just be better. Because that's not necessarily the case. Marriage is a good thing. Marriage was designed by God, but that's not going to all of a sudden just, boom, take away the conflicts that they've had with people in their lives before then, particularly their parents, because you're going to inherit each other's families. So it's important that as part of leaving that a husband and wife would settle as best as possible, as best as possible, 
conflicts with parents. It's not always possible. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Uh, this is not in your outline, but I just want to call this to your attention, and uh, hopefully you'll find it useful. Romans chapter 12. And take a look at verse 18. Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peacefully with all. Let's look at that verse. I want you to understand that there's three important truths that are pretty clear right there. But how much they hold together a truth that God wants us to understand when it comes to relationships. And that if any one of them was missing, it would drastically change what the Lord would have us do in our relationships. First, if you look at verse 18, it says, if possible. That implies that sometimes it is what? Not possible. If possible. So if possible, you should want to do this. But sometimes it's not possible. Friends, if that was not there, if possible, I would assume that it is possible in every single solitary case to be at peace with every single person, and therefore, if I'm not at peace with somebody, what do I have to do? I better keep trying. I have to try and try and try and try and try, but at some point, I might realize it's not possible. If possible, look at the next, that next phrase in verse 18, so far as it depends on you, that means it takes two to tango. Right? It takes two people who are willing to do this. I might have every intention of being reconciled with my brother or sister, with my mother and father, with my aunt or uncle, with a coworker. I might have every intention, and that other person just may not be interested. Just might be 100% uninterested in being reconciled. If possible, as much as it depends upon you, you do your part. Then it says, live peaceably with all doesn't just say live peaceably with all. If possible, might not be. As much as it depends upon you, try, try really hard, live peaceably with all. We need to remember that as it comes to conflict resolution, right? That we want to do our best. We want to know that at the end of the day, we did our best. At the end of the, at the, end of the situation, we've done our best to be reconciled and to live peaceably with people in our lives, particularly people within our families but it may not always work. But as best as possible, getting back to our notes today, a husband and wife should settle past relationships and past conflicts, rather, with parents. Uh, Also, each spouse is to put his or her mate's concerns above his or her parents' concerns. Each spouse is to put his or her mate's concerns above his or her parents' concerns. Okay? Now, that means if there was a time when um, my... Now, we don't, we don't want to take this too, too extreme, right? Um, you know, my, my parents want to go... My, my mom wants to go out for ice cream for dessert, and Sarah wants to go out for frozen yogurt. We shall go to Menchie's. Like, like, we don't, like, we can just... It doesn't have to be every single thing. I take my wife's concerns more seriously than yours, mom. Like, it's not every little thing... But when there's a situation, particularly one that really tugs on our hearts, um, what I do is I will defer to what is best for our marriage, perhaps over 
what our parents would really prefer. Each spouse is to put his or her mate's concerns above his or her parents' concerns. Okay? Leaving. That is the leaving, or many things that involve the leaving of one's parents. Leaving, cleaving, and weaving. So we spoke about leaving. We leave not only physically, we leave emotionally, we leave mentally. Um, we are joined together with our, uh, our spouses. Leaving, but then marriage also involves cleaving. Cleaving, be joined. So we've done leaving, now we're right here. We're talking about cleaving. And this is the husband and wife joyfully growing together. The husband is committed to Christ first. Excuse me, the couple is committed to Christ first and then to each other. Matthew 6, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Leaving, cleaving, and, of course, we're going to talk about weaving. Now, this stuff is really important. Not that what we said thus far hasn't been, but this is something that I think people tend to overlook. Um, and in fact, we have a, uh, a marriage conference coming up uh, next year, Lord willing, in March, right here at, the, at, at our Florence campus of Grace Fellowship Church. It's March. We'll get you the dates a little later. It might be in your notebooks. I'm not sure. But there's a marriage conference coming up, and I get to speak about this uh, aspect of marriage that involves becoming one, to becoming one, okay? Um, when you are married, when you are married in God's eyes and in our eyes, um, the two have become one, okay? The two have become one. And I'll often use this illustration, and it involves my uh, son joining his baseball team. When we pay the dues, okay, and we sign his name, he is on the team as a baseball player. Now all he has to do is learn how to play. So he needs to learn to become what he is. Does that, does that make sense? In God's eyes, the two have become one. In, in, in the eyes of the church, in the eyes of the world, Peter and Sarah are, are one thing. We are, one, we are Mr. and Mrs. LaRufa. We are one thing. But that doesn't mean oneness just happens. That doesn't mean friendship just happens. That doesn't mean we just automatically just become close just because, well, we, we share space and we share a home and we got these kids and we sleep in the same bed and we have sex and we go out on dates. Like, all of a sudden, that just means just oneness just happens. We need to want to be one. And especially now, almost 14 years in, we need to maintain the oneness that we have. So leaving, cleaving, and weaving is a process that takes a lot of intentionality on our parts. A lot. And I find that oftentimes in marriages, particularly in, as I do more and more counseling, it's this idea of weaving and cleaving, this cleaving and weaving that has kind of fallen by the wayside. People have, people have left, okay, and they're dedicated to each other, but they kind of just figure that eventually, eventually something will, like the fingers here would like just eventually just fall into place over time. I mean, and that doesn't, that doesn't happen. It takes a volitional effort to not only leave, not only cleave, but to weave. And to say, we're going to make this marriage strong. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be without its challenges. But we're going to do our best to make this marriage strong. So that's what we're talking about when it talks about weaving, becoming one flesh, continually engaging in 
physical activity, emotional, mental, and spiritual activity that promotes unity and oneness. And what we're emphasizing here is the coming together of a husband and a wife to meet each other's physical and sexual needs and wants and desires to strengthen and encourage and satisfy one another and even potentially reproduce because that's what God created sex for, for, the one, for, for procreation as well as for lovemaking between a husband and wife. And we see that, I love, I love that there's Proverbs 5, verse 19, and then just the entire Song of Solomon. Like, just, just read it, you'll get it. Like, it just, that's basically the whole point of, of Song of Solomon, this, this love relationship that you're seeing depicted between these two people. Okay, and this is something that, that is very important in a marriage. Okay, they had total trust and openness and fellowship in their nakedness, they being Adam and Eve. They were without fear of one another's ability to do harm or bring about shame because shame didn't exist in Genesis chapter 2 because Genesis chapter 2 is before Genesis chapter 3. And shame is a direct result of the fall. Weaving does not mean that the husband or wife cannot function without the other. That's important to realize. Weaving doesn't mean like they can't function without the other. But it does mean that we are making great strides Great strides in our marriage to try to make sure that we strengthen Team LaRufa. That we strengthen Team Artizone. That we strengthen Team Cauda. That we strengthen, you fill in the blank. We do our best to strengthen us because we are on the same team. And oftentimes that's something that we need to remind each other. Often that's something we need to look back on and remember, yeah, we're on this same team. If this team isn't strong... There's going to be lots of problems in our lives. Lots of problems in our lives. Think about your own, if you're married in here, of course, think about your own marriage. And what do you do to strengthen your marriage? How do you work on your marriage? Not how do you get married. That's, that's like a, a one-time deal. You did, you did that. Yay. Okay. How do you Work on your marriage and strengthen your marriage. Do you do things that are intentionally face-to-face, coming together, one-on-one, talking to each other, drawing each other out, learning each other? It takes time. And oftentimes in counseling, it's these things that are missing when it comes to a marriage, that the, the, the couple has been married. Now, sometimes there's, sometimes there's terrible, terrible sin that has infiltrated the marriage because somebody has given into the flesh, um, and whether it's a, a, a sexual sin or a betrayal of trust in some way or another, sometimes there's terrible, terrible sin that needs to be repented of and needs to be uh, grown out of and struggled through, and then we need to put on the righteousness of Christ. That's certainly, certainly true. Other times, other times... People just aren't doing their best to weave and cleave. And they think it'll just happen. But friends, it does not just happen. I'm speaking from personal experience. I kind of just figured that we got married. And of course, none of this was conscious. I'm looking back. I'm looking back. Sarah and I uh, both loved each other, but we also both really loved ourselves. Okay, we were pretty... Just, we, we look back and we always say, we're just pretty selfish human beings getting married. And by God's grace, it worked out. But, but, and, and, and God convicted us of things. But just coming into marriage, we look back on what we thought and how we thought and how we functioned. We were just pretty 
selfish people. Now, I'm not saying we're totally selfless people right now, but we've grown and we've repented and we've changed a lot. Um, and I know that I, I think I was putting time into um, ministry, time into growing as a young pastor, time into growing as, as, as a leader within the church, and really intentionally reading intentionally, talking to different people, and wanting to make sure that I was doing my best. I also had like this I don't know, just, just the, the, the new young pastor on staff, I thought I need to prove something, very, very proud. And that the marriage thing would just work out, right? We live together. We'll get, how do you get close to each other? I mean, we sleep six, seven, eight, nine hours together. We're close, we're, we're close a lot. We spend eight hours together every day, sleeping. And just figured it would kind of happen. And yeah, we'll go out on dates and catch a movie, and, but it'll just kind of happen. That's not the case. Marriage requires effort. Marriage requires effort long before something's gone way south or something's gone wrong. It requires effort just to, just to maintain unity and maintain oneness and to, for the two to become one flesh, practically speaking, so that we can learn to become what we are. Now, God provides marriage to complete man and fulfill God's plan. To complete man and fulfill God's plan. Marriage provides companionship. We read this in uh, Genesis 2 and verse 18. Marriage provides companionship. Companionship provides a solution to the aloneness problem. So if you think about what you see in the Genesis account, we see Adam being created before Eve, and Adam um, is literally single, (laughs) right? Like only guy on the earth, right? So, So, I mean, no one more single than Adam. Like he was the human being on earth. And then God looks down and says, you know, it is not good that man be alone. Now, that's not God saying singleness is bad, okay? Because God created Adam. That wasn't bad. But that's God's way of saying, I'm not going to stop there. It's not good if I just leave man alone. Uh, He needs help. He needs help. It's not good that man would just be alone. He needs a helper that is suitable for him. Because he shouldn't live this life just by himself. So God models for us, watch this, ultimate aloneness, right? Only man on earth. Ultimate companionship in a marriage. Ultimate aloneness, he's the only man, right? All by myself. If anybody could sing that, Adam could totally sing that with ultimate companionship in a marriage. So marriage provides companionship. Companionship provides a solution to the aloneness problem. Companionship involves God providing a helper suitable for man. And I I really get frustrated. I get frustrated at the more liberal view of this text and how people have hijacked it and look at it and say, this is a way of God right from the get-go saying that, Woman is less than man. And like, man, he gave man a servant. He gave man a helper because he, was, he needed help. He needed help. There was something that Adam wouldn't have had without, without Eve. This is, he compliments her, right? There's the, he's missing this, and she comes in, boom. Oh, now, he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is great. Now I have, I have someone who is like me, someone who I can be one with. But shame on us if we look at that text and even dare think for a single moment that that is an example of God valuing man above woman. God created man first and then gave him a helper. How about God created man first and he needed help? 
So he creates a woman to come and complete him, and the two become one flesh. Companionship involves God providing a helper suitable for man, a helper that is comparable to him, a helper that is suitable for him, meeting him where he is, filling in the gaps in his life that he could not otherwise fill on a human level. Marriage should bring glory to God and preeminence to Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, we read these words, beginning in verse 17. He, that's Jesus, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Marriage should bring glory to God and preeminence to Christ. Uh, God uses marriage to help a believer become more like Christ. We kind of covered that uh, before when we were talking about the growth in holiness, growth in Christ-likeness. God's gift of marriage... uh, Oops, what did I do? Oh, Ephesians 5, sorry. God's gift of marriage is to facilitate sexual expression, purity, and duty. We read about that in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 5. God's plan was and is to populate the earth through the covenant of marriage. Genesis 1, Genesis 9. Um, The procreation of children, God designed that to happen as a result of marriage, as a result of a husband and wife coming together, sharing in that lovemaking that is God's gift and is a good thing. And then the fruit of the womb, we're told in Psalm 127, is what? It's a gift. It's a reward. And that is what God has designed for marriage. Marriage is designed to model and proclaim the gospel to the world through imperfect, growing believers in Christ. Designed to model and proclaim the gospel to the world through imperfect, growing believers in Christ. That a lost world would see the way that Sarah and I relate to one another and would see something different. That we would want to relate to one another in a way that brings glory and honor to God and typifies and illustrates the gospel. That my leadership of my home and the leadership that I provide of my wife would be the same way that Jesus provides leadership for his church, sacrificially, first and foremost. I think you're going to learn about this in the next session when uh, Pastor Brad talks about the role of the husband and the role of the wife, whereas worldly leaders lord it over Lord it over their subjects, right? They see themselves at the top of the pyramid and they're over everyone that they lead. And they see themselves at the top of the pyramid, top of the food chain, right? Whereas in the Bible, in Christianity, particularly in marriage, leadership puts it on its head. Jesus, who we just read in Colossians chapter 1, is preeminent above all things, above all creation, above all people, takes the weight of the world upon his shoulders, takes the weight of the sin of the world upon his shoulders, and leads by sacrificing himself, leads by serving, leads by loving his church. That's the example I have before me as the leader, as the head of my home. Kind of a big deal. I'm called to be like Jesus. Because he's like, he's like perfect, right? That's a big deal. And that wives are called to be like the church, but also to be like Jesus as well. I remember I used to think, 
how come, it's, how come I have to be like the perfect guy and Sarah gets to be like the church, which we always say makes mistakes in Islam, but my model, right, the guy that I have to choose, the son of God, right, that's, that's who I'm shooting to be like. And Sarah gets to be like the church, which is sometimes good and sometimes like, nuts. not fair. Sarah also looks to Jesus Christ as her, as her model for how to be a godly wife. See, the church is supposed to be subject to Christ. Okay, the church looks to Christ and follows, follows him wherever he leads, trusts him, be, um, um, follows him in a way that responds well to his loving servant leadership. But that doesn't mean that I get to look to my Savior and Sarah has to look to the church. I get to follow Jesus. Sarah's got to follow the church. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to show you something. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is not in your notes. But I just figured in the short time we have left, we'll look at head coverings and get that all worked out. No, I'm kidding. We're not going to. We are going to look at that passage, we're just, but we're not going to work that all out. Why don't you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Okay, let's just stop right there. Look at verse 3. Paul says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is who? Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, right? And the head of Christ is God. Is Christ the model for the leader? Yes. Does Christ also have a head? Yes. So Christ embodies both the person who is the leader, and also the person who is submissive. A husband and wife can both look to Jesus as their example for how to live in a God-glorifying way in marriage because Jesus, who is the head of the church, is not the head of the Trinity. Jesus, who is the head of the church, you have to realize that. You see that right there? He is the head of the church, But he also has a head. He submits to his father. He submits to God the Father. We read about that in Philippians chapter 2, that he did not consider uh, equality with God something to be grasped, that he was obedient, that he was humble in nature. Both the husband and wife look to Jesus as their model to fulfill their marital requirements, the, the things that God has required of them both in leading and in submitting. And they're both embodied in Jesus in Jesus Christ. Conclusion. <clears throat> when man in the midst of his failures, sufferings, trials, and tragedies follows God's blueprint for marriage, great joy, satisfaction, and spiritual growth is experienced. When we follow the word, and that's what we're here to provide our counselees. We're here to say, look, if you, not, not, not in a rude way, just do what the book says. Just do what the book says, and everything will be okay. But call them back to basic truths concerning marriage to say, look, there is hope, there is help for you in God's word. Jesus Christ has hope for you 
and your marriage. Jesus Christ is the what made flesh. The word, say it again, the word made flesh. He dwelt among us. We have Jesus Christ to hear from as we read our Bibles and Jesus Christ to share with our counselees, particularly with those who are struggling in their marriage. And we can call them back to the hope of Christ, following God's blueprint and ultimately following Jesus Christ. When man does not follow God's blueprint, when man does not follow Christ, God's blueprint for marriage, tremendous pain, sorrow, chaos, instability, insecurity, terrible things, destruction ensues. But marriage is designed by God for his redeemed children to live out the gospel within a community of believers as a proclamation to the whole world for his name and for his glory. These are basic truths, very, very basic truths, not not shallow or easy truths, but basic truths concerning marriage that apply to every single marriage in the room and every single marriage that would come to you perhaps for counseling or every single marriage that you would have the opportunity to impact with hope and help from God's word. So we did something that we uh, rarely do, and that is we finished, we finished early. Some people think miracles don't happen. I want to know if, uh, do you have questions, comments? We can use this as a time for, for some Q&A before we go to our break. We have, we have plenty of time. What questions might you have? Oh, I think you have some resources in your, uh, in your book listed there. Jay Adams, Christian Living in the Home. Um, let, me, uh, let me talk to you about these uh, resources really fast, and then we'll go for, we'll, we'll go for Q&A. Jay Adams, Christian Living in the Home is a very, very good book, a really helpful book about talking about some really, really uh, helpful topics, particularly on a premarital or a pre-engagement side of things, um, but not limited to that, of course. It's a straight read. Jay Adams, uh, if you know anything about Jay Adams and his writing, Jay Adams is like the king of just the facts, ma'am, right? Like he's not going out of his way to be winsome or going out of his way to make sure he entertains. It is a straight read through a lot of good truth. With that, I would also say there's a book now that's not listed in your notes. I don't think so. Do you have a book called Tying the Knot in your notes? Is that there? Write that down. Tying the Knot by Rob Green. Tying the Knot by Rob Green. This book is primarily um, designed on a premarital side of things to prepare one for marriage. But there are times, okay, and I'm about to do this with a couple that I'm, that I'm, uh, that, that I'm counseling. There are times when I will treat a married couple with premarital counseling because it's become evident to me that they didn't discuss these things before they, they were married. So sometimes those pre-marriage books you can use in counseling even though somebody's been married for a short time or even a long time because it's getting to the basics. Tying the Knot is an excellent, excellent book. And in the back of that book, a little yellow book, in the back of that book, there's uh, helps for you as the counselor. So it's okay, during this chapter, here's what you're going to look for. You're going to want to do this. You're going to want to check this out. Really, really, really good. Really good. Um, the Homework Manual for Biblical Counseling by Wayne Mack is a classic biblical counseling book that I've been using for years, uh, as well as Strengthening Your Marriage, particularly that second, second edition. Uh, Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas and Paul Tripp's What Did You Expect? Um, my wife and I actually recently started listening to that book while we were... Uh, driving. We had a long drive somewhere. It's a really, really good book. And um, Paul Tripp writes that, and uh, we've really enjoyed it. We're, I think we're five chapters in. Well, 
Honestly, I was driving, okay? And I think Sarah's three chapters in because she fell asleep. I listened to four and five. So, it's not a competition, but anyway, two become one. Okay, uh, questions, comments? Yes, ma'am. Okay, that was a really good question. She said, is there a place for leaving um, in the context of a single person? So they're not necessarily leaving um, to be married, uh, but ought they leave at some point in their life because they are, they are single? Um, it's hard to paint that with a broad brushstroke. Speaking for marriage, I would say if you are marrying somebody, you must leave. You must leave mentally. You must leave emotionally. It'll do harm to your marriage. Um, there's, depends on how we define leaving. I think um, there's a benevolent sense of responsibility that I'm going to have for my kids, particularly my daughter, um, probably for as long as someone else has not taken that responsibility or I have not given that responsibility to someone else, namely her husband. So whether she's literally under my roof I'm going to have some sort of a response. Hopefully, I won't be that helicopter hovering parent, but I'm going to be responsible and caring for her until someone else cares for her in particular, and hopefully all my kids. Um, I think it is good for... Uh, I'm, I'm a fan of... I like to resurrect the word headship. So there should be... Someone's got to get my, have my back. Someone's got to cover me. And I think if you are single, that provided your parents love the Lord and they're willing to do that for you, there's some way that they should do that. Now, I don't know if that they have to do that in your home and hold your hand everywhere you go. No, 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 I don't, I don't think that at all. But I would, I would say I wouldn't want to see you just, I wouldn't want to see a single person be totally apart from any sort of accountability or care or love or leadership that they could get from their parents or also from, from their church family. So... I don't think you must leave. You can leave, but to a, to a certain degree where you're not just totally flying solo. Does, does that make sense? Okay. So husband and wife, in order to have a successful marriage, they must leave, cleave, and weave. Uh, a single person should grow and mature, not play video games in their basement like 23 hours a day, um, but not view themselves as isolated, totally on their own, from what I can see in the scriptures? It's a good question. Any other questions, comments, concerns? Yes, ma'am. Okay, I think the question, I was leaning to try to hear, but also not fall. It was a delicate thing. So I think the question was, what should, I'll assume you're asking about two Christians, what should Christians do in a dating relationship to help each other to become more like Christ? Did that basically sum it up? Did I get it? Okay, um, 
There's lots that they can do in a dating relationship to help each other become more like Christ. Um, and lots more than just don't have sex. Okay, that's, that's important. I think a lot of times that we talk about dating in terms of sexuality and sexual purity, and certainly that's not inappropriate, but there's more that I think they can do. I think the best, I don't know how I can answer that in a minute, but I think the best dating relationships see themselves as almost married people. So the best dating relationships see themselves as almost married people. Can this work? Uh, If you can't follow him and wouldn't want to follow his leadership dating, a ring ain't going to change that. So there's either an issue with you or an issue with him. So if you're having trouble following his lead, you're not sure where he's going in life, and you have some concerns, for people to think all of a sudden, when I get married, that'll work out, that, that's, just, that's just silly. So I think in general, we would take the principles of godly marriages, and as much as possible without violating Scripture where dating is kind of testing out those waters to see, is this a thing? Can this be a thing? Might this, might this work? And in general, the way that I would seek to serve and lovingly lead Sarah bef- when we were married, I should start doing that before I'm married to show that I'm worthwhile or that I'm eligible or that I can be a godly, I can be a godly leader. I should be caring for her in a similar way, insofar as it's appropriate. Because there's going to be things that I can't do as, her, as, as not, not being her husband. Um, she doesn't have to submit to me when I'm dating. I don't have to lead her when we're dating. But if in general she doesn't want to follow my lead, and in general I don't want to provide godly leadership, why would I want to do that once I get a ring on my finger? So <clears throat> as it relates, I tried to tie in your question to our topics, and I would just say in general, dating people... People who are dating should act like almost married couples. And if marriage is not on the horizon at all, I'm not saying it has to be right there, but if it's not on the horizon at all, I would question whether that dating relationship is really wise. Helpful? Good.